I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This I say, therefore, and affirm, together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard of him and have been taught by him. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. But do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper for the saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, you be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Father, thank you that you didn't abandon us when Christ went to heaven, but just as he promised, he sent the helper, the comforter, who's come to live on the inside who gives us a new capacity to think after your thoughts as we have our minds renewed from Scripture. Thank you that the Spirit of God is given not to mock us, but to help us, to mold us, to shape us, to make us more like your Son. And so in humility, we tremble like the psalmist at your word. We recognize that what we're reading today is not man's word, but the very breath of God Almighty. So help us to lay aside all the distractions, our cell phones, our emails, our text messaging, all that happens sometimes during the service. Help us to gird up our minds for action. Help me, Father, to rightly divide the word of truth. I've studied it, I've prepared, but unless you anoint my words, I know it may fall on empty ears. So please come and anoint me today, use me. And again tonight, we pray that visitors would come to our Meet the Pastor meeting, that you would bless what we are going to do today, that we might be shaped and conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his holy and precious name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. If you are new to the Bible, all the T books in the Bible are together. They're easy to keep track of because they go from long to short. The word Thessalonians is longer than the word Timothy, which is longer than the word Titus. So you have 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and then you have Titus, and they're adjacent to go everywhere preaching Christ, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're here for the first time, we completed a couple of months ago a line-by-line exposition of the epistle of James, and God willing, before winter comes in fall, we will start a new book of the Bible. 
brand new book. I usually go from a New Testament to an Old Testament book. I try to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. And remember the early church, when they started, they didn't have the first line of the New Testament. Everything that they studied when they gathered in the early years was just the Old Testament. But all the Scriptures were about Christ. So right now, I am in a series on moral purity. And sadly, we have reached a crisis point in our nation because the home, which is the very fabric and strength of any nation, has come unraveled. We're at a crisis point as it relates to purity. And sadly, moral impurity has walked right in the front door of the church. And when I, of course, I use the word church, I recognize there's the true church and the false church. There's the professing church and the possessing church. There's the church that's alive and there's the church that is dead. There's the church that believes in the inerrant, infallible, eternal Word of God and the church that does not. So we began this series by looking at avoiding moral failure, and we studied King David and his fall into adultery with Bathsheba. From there, we dealt with finding moral forgiveness. And we looked at the woman caught in the very act of adultery, drug into the temple precincts, and placed before the Lord Jesus. And God teaches us a lesson on forgiveness, that where there's failure in our life, we might find forgiveness. Then we dealt from Genesis 38 with reaping moral compromise as we studied the life of Judah. And we saw that he indeed reaped what he had sown. And God put two chapters side by side. Next to that, we looked at Genesis 39, where we studied the life of Joseph on achieving moral victory. And then if you were here in our last session together, we dealt with confronting moral perversion as we dealt with the LGBTQRST movement, however many letters you have in it. And if you know Bible history, and if you know secular history, then you know that a nation that has compromised itself morally is a nation that is about to implode. Are you aware of how quickly we have embraced the homosexual lifestyle? And we've seen that whenever there is heterosexual promiscuity, homosexual perversion is quickly adopted. I could go through all kinds of statistical evidence. I could share studies. But let me just read one quote to make my point. Even in non-religious terms... Homosexuality represents a misuse of the sexual faculty. Homosexuality is a pathetic little second-rate substitute for reality, a pitiable flight from life. And as such, homosexuality deserves fairness, compassion, understanding, and when possible, treatment. But it deserves no encouragement, no glamorization, no rationalization, no fake status as a minority, no pretense, that it is anything but a pernicious sickness. Do you know where those words came from? They were written by an expert in his day. It was the cover story, 1966, of Time magazine entitled Homosexuality in America. Can you imagine the outrage if Time magazine printed words like that today? The idea that homosexuality is a fake minority, a pernicious sickness that deserves treatment? I mean, they would be there in New York City protesting with signs wanting to burn the place down. 
As late as 1972, the American Psychiatric Association termed, quote, homosexuality as a disorder deserving psychiatric treatment. Yet today, it is no longer the homosexual who needs treatment, rather those who speak against it. And when you study the history of nations, and again, we documented it last time from Romans chapter 1, whenever there is heterosexual promiscuity, homosexual perversion is quickly adopted. And when that begins to become the tenor of a nation, that nation is getting ready to implode. And when the church sends a mixed message as to what is really right and wrong, instead of helping the nation, we are helping to destroy the nation. I was counseling an individual in another state. A lot of people listen to search the scriptures online, and especially in 10 other states outside of South Carolina. And a person called me. They had seen their born-again counselor in their local church and wanted to know my take. And the counselor of this Bible-believing church said this to the couple, while I don't personally agree with the way you live, they were living together, not married. That's just what your generation does, so who am I to judge? Look, I don't care what a pastor tells you. I don't care what a counselor tells you. You can change what God says in his word about sin, but you cannot change God's word. Jesus was very clear that we are to represent his truth, not only in what we teach, but in the way we live. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown and trampled underfoot by men. So when the church has lost its saltiness by moral compromise or an unwillingness to teach what God says, then we have lost our cutting edge. So this is the sixth and final message in this series on morality. I've entitled it Pursuing Moral Purity, subtitled Who You Are When No One Else Is Looking. First Thessalonians chapter 4 If you're new here, you need to bring a Bible to church. If you don't have one, and I understand that many don't when they come, come tonight and meet the pastor at 530, and we'll give you a brand new Bible courtesy of an anonymous family. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning now in verse 1. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. History has demonstrated that any nation, any culture that treats sexuality lightly will teach and treat their fellow humans in a similar way, very lightly. So we have an abortion holocaust in our world. 
600 million babies have been aborted worldwide, 60 million in our country, and we led the way in the technology and we sold it to nations across the world. 60 million Americans are missing, not to mention had they grown up and the children they would have. The only way we can sustain ourselves as a country is to continue to open up and let people from other nations come. We would be in deep financial trouble without opening it up to other nations. Now, we need to do it in a legal way. Our border is in a crisis. This administration seems to have no real direction as to what's right. I hope you understand that while we are to be compassionate to the alien in the land, God's Word teaches that. He also teaches very clearly that there's such a thing as borders, that God established borders. We are letting people into our nation, especially from the Islamic countries, who are someday going to walk into your neighborhood and slit one of your friend's throats. You say, that's harsh. That's the Quran, and they are taking advantage of an administration that is lax. So we have this abortion holocaust. We have the abuse of children like we've never seen before in our history, and the elderly are being ripped off. They're being denied some basic care. Just let them die. You say, that is happening? Yes, it is, and you're blind if you are not paying attention. But this is what happens when people treat sex lightly. They will treat their fellow human in the same way. I mean, have you ever thought about the moral implications of evolution? People who say there's no God, there's no such thing as the supernatural, so you have to come up with some other way to explain the high, highly complex creation that we live in. But when you deny God, you deify man. When you deny God, there's really no one to whom you are ultimately accountable. There's no true sense of right and wrong. And of course, when you teach that we evolve from animals, people will live like animals. And so we have the mess that we have today in the United Methodist Church, among certain Presbyterian denominations, sadly most Lutherans with the exception of one Lutheran denomination, Episcopalians, Cooperative Baptists, and on we could go where because they do not believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. They say it's inspired. They use the same dictionary. I mean, excuse me, they use the same words, but they use a different dictionary to define them. So you got the slick cooperative Baptists who say we believe in inerrancy, and they don't. They don't believe in the traditional historical definition. And so it is we could walk through every denomination, which I do, by the way, in my course on bibliology if you're interested in studying that. And so we had Dr. William Craig Lane come out this week denying the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. And he said the creation story was just a poetic way of expressing God's goodness to man, but it's not history. And then you have so-called Christian apologists like Tim Keller, who says that there's contradictions and the creation story, and that it's just as plausible for someone to embrace theistic evolution as it is the creationist point of view. That's utter heresy. 
and it's a denial of what Jesus told us and what he taught concerning the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so again, if there's no absolutes, if the Bible can be questioned in terms of its authority, then we will no longer see it as sufficient. And if there's no real clear guidance as to what is right and what is wrong, then everything is up for grabs. This is not the first time it's happened in history. In fact, it happened it a few times during Israel's history. There was a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. He wrote two books in the Bible, Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. Of course, Lamentations follows Jeremiah. To lament means to cry. We often refer to him as the weeping prophet. And immorality and idolatry was so widespread in his day that he said the people had lost their ability to blush. And so how does a local assembly, how do you as an individual Christian make an impact in this kind of a culture? And God's way has always been the same. He takes a man, a woman, he takes a teenager, he takes uh, a young person, eight, nine, ten years old, who's willing to be distinctively different and they shine as a bright light in the midst of the culture. Now, let me bring you into the context of our passage this morning uh, before we go through the details of chapter 4. Chapters 1 through 3, the basic thrust is doctrine. It's what we believe, and chapters 4 through 5 is how we behave. And by the way, that's the way many of the Pauline epistles unfold. For instance, Ephesians, two parts, 1 through 3, what we believe, 4 through 6, how we behave. Romans, 1 through 11, what we believe, 12 through 16, how we behave. So he's been unfolding doctrine here for us because he recognizes that your doctrine leads to duty, that precept leads to practice. And of course, a false practice comes from false doctrine. And so he wants us to be sound in the way that we think. And so in these eight verses, he's describing how can we be men and women of moral integrity? Three simple points in your outline. The first concerns the will of God, the will of God. Notice how verse one begins. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Now, finally then, this is not a conclusion to the letter. Grammatically, it just marks a transition. He's getting into the practical aspect of what he just taught us. In light of these truths about you as a believer, here's how I want you to live. And he tells them to excel still more, which tells me because he's just affirmed them, he says, I want to tell you how to walk as you're already walking, that what he's about to say is not corrective, it's exhortive. He's already um, pleased with the way they're living, but he wants them to excel even more in their walk with the Lord Jesus. Now, during the time of Paul's visit, to Thessalonica. And by the way, as you read the New Testament epistles, you should try to ask, where in the Acts of the Apostles do we find this particular group of people that are described? And when you read Acts 17, Paul says um, he taught them some basic truths. And so he's going back to that. He says, you received. Do you see that ED at the end of the word received? It's a past tense. You received from us. Paul and his missionary team about how they should live in this area. Now, that's important 
You receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. Now, I have underlined here in verse 1 the word walk. The word walk is not used literally here, though sometimes it is in the New Testament of a physical walk, but it's used metaphorically. And so throughout the letters, Paul say, walk in a manner worthy of the call and so on. He's describing your lifestyle. And we use it that way, don't we? We say, well, how's his walk with the Lord? We're using it metaphorically. You receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. And by the way, that should be your goal. Maybe you have young children in the home. Maybe you have grandchildren. Your goal is not just to impart truth, but to take that truth, be it in an adult Bible fellowship, or maybe you're teaching an Awana class tonight, or maybe you have fifth grade boys in Sunday school this morning. You want to take that truth, and you want to ask, how am I going to take it and integrate it into their lifestyle? And of course, we need to lead by example. So I hope you teach in such a way that you're helping people to want to learn to please God. We have Christians today whose heads are filled with doctrine, but whose lives are really not changed. So we are to teach so as to change lives. Excel still more. Don't be stationary. One of our 81-year-old members wrote me this week, and Chuck remarked, and I quote in his letter, as you know, the sanctification process is ongoing and lifelong. Now, he was writing me to let me know that in light of their age and other challenges, they needed to be careful, and rightly so, and they're live streaming with us, I'm sure, this morning in one of these services. But here's an 81-year-old guy saying, the sanctification process is lifelong and ongoing. I love it. He didn't quit. He hasn't quit. You keep on growing in your relationship with Jesus until he takes you up into heaven. Now, with that said, in verse 2, Paul gently reminds the church here by the, of the authority by which he taught. Look at verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. You see that word commandments? It's not the typical word translated commandment in the New Testament, ontolay. It's a specific word that is used to describe a commandment or instruction that is given from a superior person to a subordinate. And so it's a military term if, a, if a, an officer gave an enlisted man instruction, and you can translate it instruction. And some of the English texts that maybe you have in your lap render it that way. Sometimes when you're trying to do a word-for-word -word correspondence from the Greek to the receptor language, there's not a single word that will capture it. So he's talking about instruction, but instruction that's not optional. And so he uses the word for a commandment that what I am telling you has absolute authority um, by the way, this is the same word just used in verbal form of the Sanhedrin uses it in Acts chapter 5. Listen to these words. We gave you strict orders. Same word, just a verb. We gave you strict commandments, you could say. Not to continue preaching in his name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, what Paul is saying is that what I'm about to unfold for you comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
It comes from the commander-in-chief. And this, by the way, is very similar. He just doesn't go into the same detail that he gives in 1 Corinthians 7. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, now concerning the things you wrote me about, and so in 7, 1 through the rest of the book, he begins to tick off one issue after another of issues they wrote Paul about, questions, and he answers them. And so one of the issues concerns singleness and about marriage and troubled marriages. And so on the one hand, he says, uh, what I'm about to tell you is not from me, it's from the Lord. That a woman should not leave her husband, but if she leaves, she's to remain single or be reconciled to her husband. And then a few verses later, he's gonna say, what I'm about to tell you now is not from the Lord, but it's from me. But I'm speaking as an apostle and with absolute authority. So Paul's dealing here with the former. He is looking at that time, probably during that three-year-plus three period when he's out in the desert after he's converted. If you remember, he's out in the desert, and he's personally instructed. He gets the same kind of seminary experience that the disciples had, just not with the living Christ physically, literally in their presence, in his presence, but from the reigning, ruling Christ. And God instructed him in a very personal way during those three years. And the Lord taught him about sexual morality. Now, I find that very interesting, that of all the subjects that Jesus addressed with this preacher, that he wanted him to know something about sexual purity. Because God knows that a person's life can stand or fall by the way they live in this area. And so if you and I want to walk and please God, if we want to be active soldiers, if we don't want to be AWOL, so to speak, then we had better listen up because what we are saying, Paul said, is generated from the Lord himself. And by the way, that's what we do as Christians. The message we share from this book is not generated from us. It comes from the very breath of God. All scripture is God-breathed. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Specifically, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, the word sanctification is a very important word in the New Testament. In its simplest definition, it means to be set apart. And contextually, it's habitually used as someone who is set apart as holy. Uh, You may have some sanctified dishes in your home some special dishes that you don't use for ordinary everyday use, but you just take out when the guests come. Your nicest dishes, something that is set apart. On the biblical realm, the word sanctification is used of something or somebody that is set apart for a specific purpose. For instance, in the Old Testament, the vessels and the dishes that were used in the worship of God in the temple were set apart. They weren't ordinary. They were used in a very specific way for a very specific purpose. Well, under the new covenant, believers are described as sanctified, as set-apart people. And so Paul underscores this truth, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 3.17. You might want to put that out in the margin, 1 Corinthians 3.17. Let me read it to you. He describes that we, the church, are the temple of God, and he's making a contrast between believers and false teachers. He says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, he's not talking about you, you know, smoking a cigarette or Now, that's not a good thing to do. It's harmful to the body, but that's not the point of the verse. The point of the verse is these false teachers who come in with their false doctrine, and what they are doing is they are harming the church, the temple of God. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 
Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body. In other words, under the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. And as the temple of God, we are set apart. You know, it's not a good thing to pray, uh, Lord, we thank you that we're in your house today. This is not God's house. It's no more his house than the house I live in out in Seabrook, and that he owns it all. Now it is a special place he's given us for the people of God to meet and to gather. But you meet people today who are more concerned with the stained glass and the pews and the rugs and the way the building looks than they are with themselves. The church never once ever in all of the New Testament is ever referred to as a building. It is always referred to as the people of God. And so we as the temple are to be set apart. So when we think about sanctification, we need to think about positional sanctification versus practical sanctification. Positional sanctification refers to the status that you have. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. God made him who had never sinned, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. If this Bible is Christ and this watch is me, if I am in Christ, then I have the righteousness of God in Christ. I am set apart as holy. It's nothing I earned. It's nothing I achieved. It is something that I received as a gift It is something I became, and so in the New Testament, every born-again, blood-bought believer is described as a saint. That's positional sanctification, and it's used repeatedly in a past tense. You have been sanctified, past tense. Then there's practical sanctification. That's what he's dealing with here. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, he wants you in your practice to become what he has declared you in your position, There's actually a third dimension to sanctification. Turn over a page to chapter 5. Go to chapter 5 and verse 23. It's what we might call prospective sanctification. And it's when positional sanctification and and practical sanctification meet as one and your sin nature is eradicated. Listen to these words, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When that happens, when you receive this resurrection body, when your sin nature is eradicated and you have a body like Christ, your salvation will be completed. So we've been saved in the past. We're being saved in the present. We will be saved in the future. And really, each dimension of sanctification reflects that, as do other words in the New Testament. So Paul writes, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with his glory. So that's the third aspect. But we're dealing here with practical sanctification. Now, I went through that because as you read the Scripture, it is important that you make those delineations. Hold your finger here and turn to 1 Corinthians 6. I haven't actually had you turn there yet, but we've used this verse in in each of uh, the messages on morality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And of course... uh, If you uh, go to the city of Corinth, you see through the archaeological remains what a pagan place it was. I've I've been to Corinth, and 
stood at actually the place uh, that Paul described as the Bema seat. Uh, but sexual immorality was so covered over in that city that they took this word Corinthian. So to Corinthianize in Greek meant to commit sexual immorality. It was a dirty city. And he says here in chapter 6 in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Look, there are many deceived people today. They have bought into modern Christian psychology instead of biblical truth. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators. This is a specialized use of the word porneia. It refers to premarital sex. Nor idolaters. Now, about a third of the world still worships at some object. When I was in India, I'd never seen so many idols in my life. They say they have some 300 million gods. I'm not sure how they count all those, but they're everywhere. Everything's a god, and let's make it an object of worship. A third of the world still does that. But understand, in the New Testament, idolatry is much broader. Paul can say greed is idolatry. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers. That's extramarital sex. Sex after you're married with someone who's not your wife, nor effeminate nor homosexuals, two words describing this abhorrent lifestyle, one describing the passive partner in a homosexual relationship, the other the active partner, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards. I was dealing with a, a friend recently, and he's just so discouraged. His son's a drunk. He's been through all these programs. I said, look, until your son sees that this is a spiritual problem, he's never going to change. You see, people say drunkenness, alcoholism is a sickness. If it's a sickness like cancer or some other kind of sickness, how can God hold you morally responsible? Now, it will sicken the body. It will destroy your, your, your body, but it's not a sickness. We're talking about an enslavement to sin. So don't be deceived. Nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What is he doing? He's drawing home a point that people who live like this, who, people who are characterized by these things, have never been born again. So take the first item on the list, porneia, fornication. It refers to premarital sex. The word porneia can be used in a very specific way or a broad way. For instance, they said of Jesus in John 8, we weren't born of porneia. In other words, you're here, Jesus, because of an illegitimate relationship that Mary had. Sex before, quote unquote, marriage during the betrothal. Sometimes it's used in a broad way. He's using it very specifically here. And so we have all these young people say, well, I'm not committing adultery. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm just having sex before I'm married, and there's nothing wrong with that. You can change the terms and call it what you want, but it doesn't change the sin in God's eyes. And when the church sends a mixed message as to what is right and what is wrong, we've given the culture permission to live immorally. Here's a picture of the Pope on the day this particular interview came. The man there with the beard asked the question, and he asked Pope Francis to uh, respond about 
what is called the gay lobby in the Vatican, to which Pope Francis said this, and I quote, a lot is written about the gay lobby. I still have not seen anyone in the Vatican with an identity card saying they are gay. The media say they are there. I think when one has found a person like this, we need to distinguish between the fact that they are a gay person and the fact that there is a gay lobby. If a person is gay and seeks God and has goodwill, who am I to judge? Now, the Pope should know that there is no need to judge anyone when God has already made a judgment. You know, we used to ask rhetorically, is the Pope Catholic, meaning yes, to drive home a point, and of course, the answer now is no, the Pope is no longer Catholic. He's gone against his own doctrinal positions that the church teaches. But God is clear, and when we're fuzzy, when you have J.D. Greer, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and now the new president, Ed Litton, say that God whispers about sexual immorality, that's a gross distortion of truth. And when J.D. Greer says that we should use transgender pronouns to be hospitable to people, look, I'm not in favor of being mean or kind. I had a guy who came and worked in my yard recently, and I was talking to him about different moral issues. Yeah, those gay people, man, we used to take them out and beat them up in the woods. That's not right. That's evil. Should be compassionate. Do everything you can to win them to Jesus. You know, go out and beat them up. But understand, God's Word is clear. There are certain things, premarital sex, extramarital sex, abnormal sex, that God calls wicked, and it invites the wrath of God. Jesus said that there are two principal reasons people really use, and it's not just taught by Him, but through His apostles, through whom He spoke, why people don't come to Christ. One reason is they love the darkness, so they don't come to the light. People love darkness. So when they come to the light, their sin is exposed. My wife was in Walmart yesterday with two of our granddaughters, and she said they're just kind of frozen there. They're just looking at this person. And, and then as we walked away, they said, Emma, was he a man? She said, yes, he was a man, but he was dressed like a woman with a skirt and mascara and a female name. Now, we have reached out to that man before. He's a man. But you do such a person a gross disservice when you call Stephanie Stephen, when you call Peter Pan, Pam, you don't use hospitable pronouns. You have to hold God's truth. So some people, they don't come to Christ because they want to hide behind their sin, and there's a lot of clever ways in which to do it. One is we help feed it when we have pulpits that won't tell people the truth. And now psychology has walked in the front door of the evangelical church. And so we have no longer 
taught what Scripture plainly says, and we've replaced it with human psychology. When you replace human psychology with the revelation of Holy Scripture, you're basically denying the sufficiency of Scripture. And so what do we do? We, we've redefined sin as disorders and as diseases. Look, if gluttony is just an eating disorder, if adultery and rape and fornication and pornography are just sexual addictions, if drunkenness is just a disease, if homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle, then people are not really sinning. They're just making different kinds of choices. If self-destructive behavior is not, quote-unquote, sin, then you don't need a savior. You need a therapist. And so we have a world of victims and Christians who are afraid to tell people the truth because you think you'll be unloving. Look, Nancy Pelosi is so unloving with the wickedness she has coming down the pike. She says she loves homosexual people. She hates them, according to God, because she has an agenda that is only going to further legitimize wickedness and persecute evangelical Christians and lead people away from the kingdom of God. But this is what God said would happen at the end of time. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to these words that Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4. For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And that's why the evangelical church has lost its evangelistic zeal. If you get your ears tickled long enough, you'll no longer see unbelievers as lost sinners, but as hurting victims. They don't need a savior. They need some counselor who's going to come alongside and, and help them, but they don't really need a savior. And some people, they either hide behind their own sin or they hide behind the sin of others. Jesus dealt with it in a whole chapter of Scripture during the last week of his public ministry. Woe to you hypocrites, woe to you hypocrites, woe to you hypocrites, over and over and over and over again. And people say, look, I'm not a Christian because there's so many hypocrites in the church. Of course there's hypocrites in the church. There's always been hypocrites in the church. There always will be because the wheat and the tare will be mixed together until the end of the age. But in a Bible-believing church where the Word of God is taught is true, There'll be less hypocrites. It won't be full of hypocrites because typically when the truth is taught, people will either get right or get out. I spoke with a visitor. She said, I'm never coming back. Why? You don't like LGBTQ people. I said, I love them. Yeah, but you say it's sinful. Yes, I do. I'm never coming back. <laughs> There's the door, man. You don't have to. But I said, I would be unloving to tell a person who's living in fornication or adultery and homosexuality that they can do that and call themselves a good Christian. In fact, Paul says most people who are using the banner of hypocrisy as a reason not to believe, they themselves are hypocrites. You're without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things." Now, one of the reasons that Christians are not passionate today about their sanctification, about their 
practice of holiness is because, again, there's so much compromise, and they go home at night, and they fill their minds with sitcoms and documentaries and talk shows and television series that are filled with filth and compromise. And when you subject your mind to that habitually over and over and over again, year after year, after a while, you'll get numb. And the things that you will entertain yourself on and the things that you will begin to laugh at, you will no longer take seriously. And so we will lose our ability to be a bright light and we will lose our effectiveness in the kingdom. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. I read it to you last week. For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be made known what is spoken? For you'll be speaking in the air. Look, you won't even be able to speak with any authority if your lifestyle doesn't match what the Scripture says. You won't want to speak with that authority because you will have lost the unctioning power of the Spirit of God. And that's why some of you never lead people to Christ. You can talk, you can come here as a Pharisee and make fun of this preacher, but you can't remember the last time you introduced someone into the kingdom. And that's not God's plan for you. You've short-circuited the Spirit of God in His work in your life because of compromise. And when you fill your mind with trash, you have not set your body apart in sanctification and honor. Now, let me read verse 11. We didn't come to it yet. You're still in 1 Corinthians, right? Mm -hmm. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. Notice past tense. You were sanctified. Speaking of position, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God, meaning anybody can be saved. Look, there's hope for the homosexual. There's hope for the drunkard. There's hope for the fornicator. There's hope for any of us because we're all sinners. We can be saved, and such were some of you. Paul is saying, look, many of you Corinthians originally were homosexuals. You were drunkards. You were crooks. You were fornicators. You were adulterers, but not anymore. God has set you apart as holy. And so he goes on in the rest of the chapter to say, I want your experience to match this position that you have. Now back here at verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Do you want to please God? Do you want to excel still more? Then this is the will of God, namely that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, some of the trans, older English translations would say fornication, but this is a specialized, broad use of the word. He's not referring specifically to uh, literal sexual immorality before marriage, but the broad use of it. And so sometimes, you know, like Jesus will say, out of the heart of man comes fornications and adulteries. Is he repeating himself? No. It's two distinct thoughts in mind. Premarital sex, extramarital sex. Or sometimes the word porneia, we get our word pornography from it, is used in a broad sense of any kind of sexual immorality. Context, again, determines what is in view. God wants us to abstain from sexual immorality. And outside of marriage, Paul is simply saying, with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are not to be immoral people. Now, we have the first generation of young people and teenagers who have grown up with unbridled pornography. 
the numbers I read are chilling, of 8- to 12-year-old boys who are viewing pornography. When I was a child, there was one street in Worcester where you could get it. And then eventually, as life began to change, it was behind the counter, and they usually had some kind of piece of cardboard over it. But now it's everywhere. And you can see anything you want to see. And it is destroying homes. And then people get married, and they realize it has destroyed their marriage. Time Magazine did a whole issue about a year ago of all these men in their 20s who are arguing that you shouldn't be involved in pornography because it ruins you physically. These were not believers. These were non-Christians. You think it's by accident that it seems like every other commercial is about some pill you should take? When God says, thou shall not, it is to protect you and it is to provide the best for you. And when we ignore what God says, we are destroying ourselves. He's speaking about how we can walk and please the Lord. And when you speak in such black and white terms, you're viewed as fanatical. Today, you know, people won't say to be abstain. They'll just say, well, be discreet. They won't say to abstain. They'll say, just take precautions. If you're an employer or a principal or a supervisor, they might say, well, it, it might be unwise to get involved with this person, but don't abstain necessarily. Be careful. Make sure you're in love, but don't abstain. Now, remember, this is instruction. This is instruction that comes as a commandment from Christ himself. And he is writing to a church that is filled with idolatry. In the opening chapter, you turn from your idols to the living God. I've only been to Thessalonica once, but when you go there, there's a museum and they have all these idols and they're just, well, it's first century pornography. It's disgusting. People say, oh, that's artwork. That's not artwork. That's first century porn. You go to Rome, they got all these nude statues. That's not artwork. That's pornography. You say, how so? Go home and read Leviticus 18. You'll think differently. Look, the way you think is either geared and set by Holy Scripture or something else. But understand the idols that they worship represented gods, and their gods were gods of sexual immorality. And so he says, you turn from your idolatry to the living God. Now hold your finger here and turn to the book of Jeremiah. If you're new to the Bible, if you find Psalms, Psalms is about dead center, and then scan to the right and you'll find Jeremiah the prophet. And you'll want to go to Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. It's an important chapter of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah has often been called the weeping prophet because he lived to see his nation fall and crumble. And he ended up writing the next book right after Jeremiah called Lamentations, which is a Hebrew word for, for weeping. And of course, he's weeping because of the gross immoral compromise in his day. And among other things, sexual immorality was rampant in Israel, in Judah. The people of Judah were living immorally, and it was bringing the impending judgment that God had promised. They had hedged on the standards of God. They, they had lost their sharp edge as to what was right and what was wrong. Look at verse 13. 
For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. In other words, there's a problem that's pervasive from the preacher to the people in the pew. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. That's our day. That's the pulpit in America. Superficial healing, because there's superficial teaching. Now look at verse 15. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. This is where it comes from. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They will be cast down, says the Lord. And that's the ultimate consequence of a culture that's covered over in moral laxity. You have a nation of unblushables. And again, that is where America is today. Again, folks can go home and they can watch their cable TV and download their movies and go to various internet sites and entertain themselves on filth when they should be mourning and broken. This country is not going to survive much longer. If you're a real patriot, you will live a holy life. People talk about the joys of illicit sex. I never hear of it in my office. What do I do, pastor? My wife, my husband is filed for divorce. Pastor, how do I tell my 10-year-old son, how do I tell my 8-year-old daughter that mom left and she's not coming back? Pastor, can you help me? I was sodomized as an 8-year-old boy. And I just feel so dirty and guilty and broken. Pastor, can you help me because I was abused sexually by my own father? Pastor, can you help me because I was unfaithful to my wife and I have some incurable sexual disease and she no, no longer wants me in that way. Pastor, I was immoral and I got pregnant and I had an abortion and I wake up over and over and over again with awful nightmares. Can you help me? Pastor, I caught my husband watching pornography and I just feel so degraded and so worthless as his wife. Pastor, can you help me? My wife, I caught her having an online affair. Pastor, 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 pastor. The joys of illicit sex. But like a breath of fresh air, Paul now moves from the will of God to the way of God. He doesn't leave us hanging. In the first three verses, he has unfolded the will of God. Now beginning in verse 4, he is going to unfold for us the way of God. He is going to teach us how we can abstain from sexual immorality. And the counsel is so practical. Look at verse 4. Follow along, beginning in verse 4. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. God's will, God's plan is that you carry your vessel, you could translate it body, in sanctification and honor. Now, there's a few commentaries occasionally will say, well, the vessel here is your wife. That's not true. That's just not even accurate. That's sloppy biblical exegesis. It's never used that way in Scripture to refer to a person's wife, so to speak, except in one passage, and I'll come to that. How, what is he speaking of? He's speaking here of your body. 
Let me give you some additional references. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, but we have this treasure describing the Holy Spirit who lives in us in earthen vessels, skuos, same word. In 2 Timothy 2, 21, Paul tells us that if a man will abstain from uh, wickedness and from youthful lusts, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel, a skuos. He'll be a person. He'll own a body, so to speak, for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Or in Acts 9, Christ tells Ananias, don't worry about Paul, don't be scared about him. Go for he is a chosen vessel, person, body, skuos of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Paul is not speaking of a man's wife, principally number one. Throughout the New Testament, the word skuos, vessel, is referring to your person, to your body. Doesn't mention what he is going to unfold here concerns every single person in the church, husbands and wives, single, male or female, that each of you there in Thessalonica know how to possess his own vessel. Paul, Peter described a wife as a weaker vessel as a weaker body, not mentally, not spiritually, but physically she's not as strong, typically, not always, (laughs) Uh, then one knows how to possess his own vessel, his own body in sanctification and honor. This is something God expects you to know. He wants you to know how to have a God-honoring kind of life. Now, we come from different pasts. We come with a different history in terms of sex sins. And so what God may say to you, he may not say to someone else. He's not just giving you some general information so that you can be a smarter sinner. He is giving us information so that we can be conformed to Christ's image. So notice the qualifying verse. Verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul says you're not to live like the Gentiles. Now, in the New Testament, most of you know that the word Gentile in the Old Testament, goyim, it is used of someone who is not a physical descendant of Abraham. But sometimes it's used as a synonym for a pagan, for an unbeliever. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that we're not to use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles, or some English translations will interpret it like pagans. Why? Because for the most part in the first century, if you weren't Jew, you were a Gentile, and if you were a Gentile, you were a raw pagan. And of course, he describes these Gentiles as those who do not know God. That's the opposite of conversion, right? This is eternal life that they might know you the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. Knowing the Lord is what regeneration brings, not knowing God exists, but a personal relationship with the living God. Now, remember in Thessalonica, it's almost all Gentiles. He's basically saying, look, you Gentiles, don't live like the Gentiles. Now, sadly, we live in a day where people have rationalized sin. They say, well, God doesn't mind as long as I'm not hurting anyone. I counseled someone two days ago, and they called, and Take all the air out of the balloon, you needed money. And look, when, when, when we help people with our benevolence, I view the money I give as hard-earned, sweat-blood money, and the money that you tithe is hard-earned, sweat-blood money, so we just don't give it carelessly. 
And he said, oh, I've got an opportunity to move to the Midwest and get this job. And me and my fiance, we've got everything worked out. We've got a place to live and we've got money for the truck. The only thing we don't have is money for gas. So I asked him a question. And look, when, when people come, if somebody has like a child, the child's hungry, we're going to make sure they're fed. If someone legitimately does not have money for medicine, we're going to do what we can to help them. Now, we're to do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. I said, let me ask you a question. Are you and your fiancé, do you live together? Yeah, we, we've lived together for the last two years. So I went on, and he was respectful, and he was quiet because he was waiting for my answer. And I said, well, you know, there's probably a bigger issue here than money for the truck and for you to be able to move to the Midwest to take this new job. And the bigger issue is your spiritual moral life. And it's not that Christians are perfect, but when you're born again, there's a new direction. And if there's no new direction in your life, it means you haven't been born again. And we looked at some passages like Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Hebrews 13. I read it to him. And that this is, if this is your lifestyle, which it was, hey, look, I've been ordained. I'm a pastor. They ordained me in Florida at, at this teen life thing. They may have. I said, but what you're asking me to do is to underwrite your adultery. And so I can't give you any money. Now, if you're hungry, you can come to the food pantry and we'll give you $75 worth of groceries. But you're asking me to underwrite your adultery with God's tithe money. And I'm sorry, he was so livid and he hung up on me. <laughs> you're not to live like a pagan. We are to be different. We are to know how to possess our bodies in sanctification and in honor. Now look, guys, Satan goes after us in the visual realm. Women, the devil goes after you in the emotional realm. It's not by accident that women can get just hooked on a romance series and novels and watch these things where they begin to become dissatisfied with their husbands. Because Satan, who's the prince of the power of the air, who's energizing the sons of disobedience, who produce these books and these movies and so forth, he knows how he can go after you. You sow a thought, you reap an act. You sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. And you sow a character, you will reap an eternity. Abstain from sexual immorality. Let me finish now with the warning of God. Having given us God's will and God's way, he now gives us a warning beginning in verse 6, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Now, the Greek word here for transgress means to cross a forbidden boundary. And I want every teenager to listen to me very carefully this morning. Some of the best advice I received as a brand new believer was to view and treat the girl that I was spending time with like she were my sister or like she were my daughter or like she could be someone else's wife. Look, I wouldn't want anyone illicitly messing with my sister. And if someone ever messed with my daughter, I would be tempted to kill them. 
And so it was good, sound advice. You treat that person like that person could be someone else's wife. And how would you want that person to be treated? And so he uses this word transgress when you cross a forbidden boundary. But then he uses this word defraud. Do you see it there? And it's to claim more than what is due. It has the idea of taking advantage of someone. So if you're married, adultery would be an obviously violation of someone else's right, taking what is due someone else exclusively. Or if you're single, you might be robbing the virginity of some woman or some man that exclusively belongs to someone else. And it's defrauding. And of course, if you want to go home, read Leviticus 18, because it's a chapter on sexual morality where the idea is given that we're not to uncover someone's nakedness. The only person's nakedness you are to see is the one you marry. And honestly, that should say something to women in the way they dress. And I know, ladies, it is no easy task to dress modestly in our day because everything they put out there is for hookers and prostitutes or people who want to portray themselves like that. But your breasts are not to be seen by anyone but your husband. And of course, Scripture is very clear that as Moses unfolds it, that to show off your nakedness is to take what belongs to another person. And it's sad when you got a husband who wants his wife to dress like that, like she's a piece of meat. Hey, guys, look what I got. That's a sick, twisted mind. And so you are defrauding someone, you are transgressing someone when you weigh, awaken them a sexual desire that you cannot legitimately fulfill. And God warns us against such things. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. And so he gives us four reasons here, don't miss them, for sexual purity. Now, I recognize I preached a sermon on finding moral forgiveness and that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And whatever failure we may have had in the past, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as wool. Though they be crimson, they'll be white like snow. That God buries them in the deepest sea and he puts a no fishing sign on them. As far as the east is from the west, not the north from the south, so far as he removed your sin but what we're talking about here is not the fact that you've passed out of death into life and that there's no condemnation or judgment for the believer, but he's talking about divine discipline that God exercises on his kids. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and God is described here as an avenger. Look, God can avenge sin, and he does it in many ways. He can suck all the power of the Spirit of God out of your life. And again, it's so sad when a parent can't even influence their own children for the kingdom. When they can't introduce someone to the Lord. Why? Because what they don't realize is that they have short-circuited the power of God's Spirit in their life by moral compromise. Read uh, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. You see David's inability to teach Scripture, and you see David's intimacy and joy with the Lord lost because of his adultery with Bathsheba. Paul warns, flee immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his body. 
Other sins are outside the body. This sin is against your body. It's against your very person. So God says, abstain. Why? Because I'm the avenger. That's the reason number one. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. That's the second of four reasons. God's put a new call in your life. It's not sexual immorality. It's holiness. And here's the third time Paul uses this word sanctification. Again, he's dealing here with practice. He concludes in verse 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. That's the third reason. To reject God's call to sexual purity is to reject God himself. You're not rejecting man. You're not rejecting this preacher. You're rejecting God himself. And then he gives a fourth reason, who gave the Holy Spirit to you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and Paul explains it in great detail in the second half of 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, if you are sexually immoral, you are carrying God the Holy Spirit into that immoral relationship. How are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, if you truly want to please God, then I must live pure both physically and mentally. If I truly want to please God, I need to live both pure physically and mentally. Now, again, that's the focus. That's how the chapter opened with pleasing God. So don't deceive ourselves into thinking we're pleasing God if we're living immorally. Some of us have forgotten the teaching of Job. Job, if you remember, lived during the time of the patriarchs. Job 31.1, it's one of the hundred verses I ask people to memorize I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He dealt aggressively with immorality. He made a covenant with his eyes. Job was a man who didn't want to just live outwardly. He wanted to live inwardly. And then he'll say a few verses later in verse 4 of that chapter, does he, God, not see my ways and number my steps? Yes, he does. So he didn't entertain immorality with his eyes. Look, there was nothing in the text that indicates that David went out there expecting to see Bathsheba bathing. He just stumbled upon it. But he didn't bounce the eyes and go back in. He entertained the eyes. Jesus tells us the lamp of your body is your eye. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Your eye is the window gate into the heart. What you let into the eye affects the human spiritual heart. That's 2 Samuel 11 that we studied. We're to bounce the eyes. Look, sometimes it's just there. And a woman comes and she's just, oh, she's dressed like a hooker, as my wife would say. You don't have to stare. And sometimes it's impossible. You can engage in business and you can look at the face without looking at the rest of the body. A covenant with the eyes. Listen, we are living in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, days of sensuality, pornography, and perversion. So Paul tells us, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Make no provision. For some of you, it begins with confession, and true confession involves repentance. For some guy, it might mean getting rid of his smartphone and going to a flip phone. You know, they do work, flip phones, and you can't text with them. But if it's that big of a temptation, for some guy, he might need to get rid of his computer. You know, there are adults in this church that have never owned a computer, and they're actually functioning people. 
For some person, they're so enslaved to immorality on the television, they might need to put their television in the attic. It's just a matter of how serious you are. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, plug it out. You have to have a ruthless hatred towards sexual sin. Second, there can be grave spiritual consequences by compromising oneself with moral impurity. Grave spiritual consequences by compromising oneself with moral impurity. Again, he's dealing here with practical sanctification, but to reject God's counsel to rationalize in your mental or physical spiritual life in this realm is not to reject man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. On the day God saved you, he gave you the Holy Spirit, and he gave you the Holy Spirit as your helper but you shut him down. You quench him when you entertain these thoughts or this behavior. This is important stuff. We need to decide what are we going to do? Who are we going to follow? Third and finally, God is true to his counsel and his counsel always works. He's given us instruction as to how we ought to walk and please God. Amen. they took it. They received it just as you actually are walking. I just want you to grow further. Hey, the first time I heard 1 Thessalonians 4, as I mentioned, I was about six months old in the Lord. And I heard this taught with 2 Timothy 2.22. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now in the context, Paul is describing the good versus the bad workmen the true teacher versus the false teacher, Uh, the person who's useful to the master, the person who's not. And he has just said in verse 19 of that chapter that everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And then he says, flee youthful loss. Why? Because we're instruments of righteousness. And this word flee means to run hard in the opposite direction. It's used by Stephen and Acts of Moses who fled from Pharaoh. It's used of Joseph and Mary who fled from Herod. We're not to come to terms with sexual immorality where we just kind of rationalize, well, I can put up with this much. We don't make peace with sin. We don't linger in it like Lot did in Sodom. We're to run far away from it like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. But he gives not only negative counsel, but positive counsel. Some people take a certain pleasure in the things they're not doing, but he's giving us some very positive counsel. We're to pursue four things. And the word pursue, dioke, is the opposite. It means to run hard after. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It's the exact opposite of fleeing. With who? We don't do it alone. We do it with like-minded believers, with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. As a new Christian, I saw my need to be in a good local church. A new Christian, I found some guys on my floor. Most of them, by God's grace, I led to Christ because I was the first believer on the floor. 120 guys on the floor. Within six months, there were six believers. And we met together. We prayed together. We studied the Bible together. I tried to teach them. I was in 30 minutes ahead of them. (laughs) I'd prepare for the lesson. I'd call a friend with questions I had, and I'd say, guys, I don't know much of the Bible, but I'll study it with you. And that was a floor where most of the men lived their lives below the belt. 
And we had to decide. What are we going to do? And let me just say parenthetically, if you are listening to me today and you're not a member of a Bible-believing church, you're not obeying this verse. You are to be a part of a Bible-believing verse. You're to pursue these four things with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Now, look, you can't change your past. None of us can. But today can be the first day of the rest of your life. And you can confess failure and receive forgiveness. And if you've never met Jesus, that's the first step to call upon him and to receive him as Lord. Now, our Father, we thank you that what you have deemed of us positionally, you've called us to be practically. We live in a world, Father, that you said would happen at the end of the age. In fact, you liken the return of your son to his first coming into this world. He came into such a dark, filthy world, and you told us that he would come back to the same atmosphere. Help us not to be deceived by what is happening all around us. Help us to watch over our heart with all diligence. You said from it comes the very issues and springs of life. Help us to gird up our minds for action and help someone today, Father, who's never met the Savior to know that he offers forgiveness and new life. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.